begins his gospel story that he introduced in the first four verses by sketching some portraits for us, if you will. 1.5 to 2.52 is the infancy narrative in Luke's gospel. It's set up to establish a sense of continuity with the tradition of the Old Testament. We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, to Mary and Joseph, and to Simeon and Anna. These are Old Testament era believers, so to speak. It's still the time of the Old Covenant before Jesus dies. And it's helpful for our understanding if we notice how careful Luke is here to sketch these people with the same strokes the Old Testament Scriptures used. Following his prologue in verses 1-4 to where Luke used this very um, kind of brilliant Hellenistic Greek, he switches immediately in verse 5 to the ancient Greek of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that most in his audience would have had in front of him to read. That dramatic shift in style there is very intentional. It makes his story start off even sounding like the Old Testament Scriptures that people were used to reading, suggesting that the story of Jesus flows right out of the Old Testament and is the fulfillment of it. And so the church into which Theophilus and other learners of these things were being brought was an ancient one, an ancient faith, fulfilling the promises of this book of the Hebrew people, continuing the history of God's work of salvation. Luke will open and close his gospel in the temple in Jerusalem, showing how important the Jewish roots of Jesus really are. And so Luke begins, and he will flesh out throughout his gospel by implying that Judaism as a religious system was brought to an end and fulfilled the need for it in Jesus Christ. The structure of the infancy narrative introduces John the Baptist and Jesus Christ as the two greatest figures in salvation history. Their relationship demonstrates how the old way, the old covenant, must give way to the new. And Luke is very careful to tell us that all these amazing things happened at a certain time in history, in human history. The days of Herod, the king of Judea. So history was moving. The world was going on about its business, but God was at work to accomplish the cosmic plan of salvation for which He created the world in little homes among quiet, everyday, faithful people going on about the daily business of their lives. All this took place during Herod's reign as the world would see it. But as for what's significant in the eyes of the Creator and Sustainer of history... This time in the world had to do with an obscure Jewish priest named Zechariah who lived up in the hill country of Judah. The gospel story has its backdrop in the middle of secular history, but the primary attention falls on these faithful Old Testament era saints who still had faith that God was going to keep His promise. They still called upon His name. To the world, these people would have been insignificant at best if they were thought of at all. But this is always where God has chosen to work. And so for the sake of giving an orderly account, which is what Luke said he wanted to do, Herod is necessary to get our chronological bearings. But the real story of the kingdom of God breaking into our world picks up with his priest and his barren wife in the backwater of Judah. This is the moment when God literally broke into human history to fulfill the promise He had made to Adam and Eve and all humanity that there would be a Savior. 
the gospel comes in the midst of the mundane and difficult with the promise of divine hope and joy. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is consistent, God, that it is reliable. That we may come to this book time and time again and read of the truth that you had written down for us. Lord, I ask that you would enable me to speak this morning in light of this passage and what it wants to proclaim. Lord, would you please help me stay out of it but proclaim Christ crucified for us. I pray, Lord, that you would be with each one that has come this morning, that you would enable them and empower them by your Spirit to hear and receive this word as theirs. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me go ahead and read, beginning at verse 5, and I'll read down to verse 23. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He would be a Nazarite like Samson. That's why this vow was taken for him. 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wonder and were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when this time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the centerpiece of the announcement of John's birth to Zechariah is Gabriel's words in verses 13 to 17. Luke lets us know that with the structure of the passage forms a ring from verses 8 to 23 with this introduction of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verses 5 through 7, and then a conclusion with Elizabeth specifically. We have Zechariah alone at the beginning, then Elizabeth alone at the end in verses 24 and 25. Anytime we're reading a narrative, a story, we want to take note of the time the event is occurring, the place where it occurs, and the persons involved in it. Luke introduces the persons in verses 5 to 7. Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the time this occurs, the days of Herod, king of Judea, which is a a broad but a very significant historical framework for Luke's gospel. All this is happening during the reign of Herod. That's when Jesus came. 
And Luke will narrow down this era in history to one moment in it when this priest named Zechariah is performing his priestly duties of burning incense in the holy place. His introduction to Zechariah and Elizabeth has done so in language that suggests, again, they're a continuation of those that faithful remnant of the Old Testament. Both of them are from priestly stock. Zechariah from the division of Abijah. Elizabeth is a daughter from the line of Aaron himself. Moses' brother who was the first high priest. Both are righteous before God in verse 6. Walking blamelessly in all the statutes and commandments of the Lord. And the order in which Luke tells us that tells us they were justified by faith in God who had made them righteous and they were walking in His way as a result. They're described like Noah was, like Abraham was, like Job and David were. We're barely out of the Old Testament and we already run in to God's people. They're still there. It's been 400 and some years since the closing of the Old Testament and God's people are still there. Israel's come through the Babylonian exile. They've come through Persian domination. They've gone through the horrors of Antiochus Epiphanes and now they're under the thumb of the Romans. And yet, God's promise had not failed. He still had faithful people that believed His Word. But notice the predicament of this couple in verse 7. Look back there again. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now when you couple that with Elizabeth's own statement over in verse 25, which we'll get to in a few minutes, we understand that the righteousness of this couple, the fact that they're justified and blameless, that's hidden from the religious world of Israel who viewed Zechariah and Elizabeth as possessing either sin or guilt and therefore they'd been cursed by God because they were bad people and that's why they had no children. And yet this is how God saw them. Elizabeth isn't only barren here in Luke 1. She's now too old to conceive. And she suffers reproach from the religious culture around her because of this. The tension between what is righteous in the eyes of God and what is sin and righteousness in the eyes of the Jewish religious authorities will be a major theme in Luke's Gospel. This disconnect is going to culminate in the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. In other words, think about this for a minute. The greatest conflict in the universe would be fought by Jesus between what God calls righteous and what we think is righteous. That's actually the big war. God versus Satan is not a contest. It's not worth being called a war. But this, this desire in us to determine what is righteous and acceptable to God versus what Jesus will teach is acceptable to God is the conflict of the ages. We live in a society that is driven by this attempt to become righteous through all these different things. Not righteousness as God sees it. Not even a religious kind of righteousness, but personal salvation. What makes you a good person? Well, it depends on who you ask. Those are systems of salvation. That's why people cling to them so tightly. That's why at work you can't discuss religion or politics. You can't insult people's saviors. You can't poke at the things they are doing to save themselves. The predicament of Zechariah and Elizabeth is where Luke emphasizes the circumstances in which God loves to work. Verse 7 reveals that Elizabeth is simply the latest barren woman through whom God is going to do something amazing. This has been God's M.O. 
Sarah, Abraham's wife, was the first barren woman in Scripture that we know of, where God would display His power. She was too old. She was 90. Right? How many of you pushing 90 or close to it or maybe past it would like to give birth right now? Right? No, no, nobody. Not, yes, we can't. We, we can't give birth. We, but she was 90, well past menopause. She couldn't have a son. But she did. Why? Because promise trumps genetics. The minute we read that she was barren in verse 7, our hearts ought to be trained by the rest of Scripture to get ready for something to happen. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was next after Sarah. She was barren for the first 20 years of her marriage. And then Jacob and Esau were born. Rachel was childless until Joseph was born. In Judges 13, Manoah's wife was barren and then Samson was born. Ruth was childless in her first marriage. Then she gave birth to Boaz, who's the ancestor of the great King David in the line of Jesus. Hannah was barren. Devastated because of it in 1 Samuel until God gave her the boy Samuel. And so the Bible's been revealing to us again and again in ways just like this. That God does His greatest work when we can do nothing. God does His greatest work when we can do nothing. That pattern will culminate in the Bible. Not just when a barren woman gives birth, but when a virgin woman gives birth. When we can contribute nothing. When everything we want to contribute is completely exhausted and we have nowhere else to turn, God proves that for Him, nothing will be impossible, even the impossible. God always brings about His promise by way of a miracle. Never with our help. It is always monergism. God doing it. One way. Never synergism. Never cooperation. By beginning his gospel with an Old Testament saint like Zechariah performing the priestly acts of the Old Covenant at the temple in Jerusalem, Luke immediately shows that his narrative has to be understood in connection with Israel and the Old Testament. God is going to begin the work of bringing his kingdom into the world right in the place where he first began to keep his promises and make his name known. The angel appeared to Zechariah during one of the highest moments of his life, no doubt, in verses 8 through 10. There were a lot more priests available than there were priests needed in service to the temple. In fact, each division of priests that there was served for only one week twice a year. So they would cast lots, which is like dice, to determine who would perform what specific functions. Like placing the incense on the hot coals of the altar of incense in the holy place of the temple. That incense symbolized how Israel's prayers would ascend up to God. That's why the people are in verse 10 are out praying at that time. On this particular day, the lot had fallen on this man named Zechariah to burn incense. What for us is a game of chance. Proverbs teaches the lot is, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every turn is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 What a moment it must have been for Zechariah. He's probably so excited into his priestly duties that the appearance of the angel of God absolutely scared him to death. The angel appears in verse 13, and as is normal in Scripture, there had to have been something so otherworldly about angels, besides the fact that, you know, they're there, but just something about their appearance was apparently terrifying to human eyes. The angel, Gabriel, we'll find out in a moment, tells him that his prayer has been heard. Could you imagine that that's how God answers your prayer? One thing to know here in the Old Testament, this is very important, 
at the outset of Luke's Gospel. In the Old Testament, Gabriel is only mentioned by name in the book of Daniel. Daniel 8.16 and Daniel 9.21. The parallels between his appearance in Daniel and his appearance in Luke leave no doubt that his appearance in Daniel is being alluded to by his appearance in Luke's Gospel. Gabriel appears in both Daniel and Luke at the time of sacrifice. Both Daniel and Zechariah are afraid. Gabriel introduces himself in much the same way. The greeting is almost the same as well. Both Daniel and Zechariah are unable to speak, and then their speech is finally restored. The reactions are very similar. It's also very interesting to note that in Gabriel's prophecy that in 70 weeks there would be deliverance for Israel. 70 weeks can be counted from the announcement of John the Baptist's birth to the presentation of Jesus in the temple by Mary and Joseph. From the announcement to Zechariah to the announcement to Mary is 180 days. From the conception of Jesus to His birth, 270 days. And from the birth of Jesus to His presentation in the temple, 40 days. 180 plus 270 plus 40 equals 490. 70 times 7. In both Daniel 9:24 to 27 and in Luke, 70 weeks then bring a fulfillment climax of deliverance by the Messiah who will enter the temple and remake it. Daniel prophesied not of the second coming of Jesus, but of His birth, death, resurrection, and ascension at His first coming. Remember, part of what Luke wants to show is the first coming of Christ into the world. There, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the reason it was so difficult, one of the reasons it was so difficult for them to embrace Jesus, is, as you've heard me use the example before, if you're driving, and up ahead of you, miles ahead of you, is a mountain range, when you're far away from them, it looks like all those mountains are very far apart. But then when you're in them, you're driving through the mountains, the mountains are happening, you realize that they're, or when you're far away, they look stacked on top of each other. Then when you're driving in them, you realize how far apart they are. They're just so massive, you can't tell from far away. That's how they would have been viewing prophecy. They would have thought it all happens packed up together. No, it doesn't. When you get into it, you realize that time is going to pass before all these things come to pass. But they're begun here. Gabriel tells Zechariah the significance of the son that will be born to him. He will bring great joy in verse 14. And not merely for Zechariah and Elizabeth. He will be greatly equipped by God for his ministry in verse 15. He'll bring about a drastic change for many in Israel in verses 16 and 17. When God moved to answer Zechariah's personal prayer, the benefit would be for all Israel. Their child will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God in verse 16. Many were going to turn to God in repentance through the ministry of their son. In verse 17, this repentance is explained in language that reminds us of Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.6. He will prepare the way before me and He will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers by coming just before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist will accomplish the following to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just. Luke read the prophet Malachi to be saying that the fathers there are the Jewish leaders who are disobedient to God, while the children, the Gentiles and sinners, 
are the new children of the righteous. Later in Luke 3.8, the stones refer to Gentiles. In 7.35, the children are none other than John the Baptist and Jesus. But wisdom is justified by John and Jesus like the tax collectors, the sinners, and the Gentiles. Or let me say that correctly. In both chapters 3 and 7, the Jews who reject John and Jesus, or both, are contrasted unfavorably with those who receive John and Jesus like the tax collectors, the sinners, and the Gentiles. Gabriel's announcement is a preview of another major theme in Luke. The Jews reject Jesus as they do John the Baptist. But the Gentiles and sinners receive the promise of the Old Testament. Jesus and John are united in being rejected by the Jewish religious establishment. Why is that? It's good to remember that that's still the case often today. Those who know or embrace their genuine need for Jesus are usually the types that will be looked down upon by the self-righteous and self-confident. It's a tale as old as time. Gabriel's announcement of John's birth gives a preview of the theological implication of his ministry for which his father will praise the Lord with a song in verses 76 to 79. But for now, it's Zachariah's turn to respond to all this. He speaks the same kind of words his father Abraham did when he responded to God's vision that he would have a son in Genesis 15.8. How shall I come to recognize this? Abraham asked. Zechariah asks, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, but that's impossible. That can't happen. Which very interesting here. Why he is made mute for a time, for saying that, while Mary later is not rebuked for her question. It's because Mary didn't disbelieve it would happen. Mary was asking, how can that happen? Zechariah is saying, that can't happen. And it's here in verse 19 that Gabriel actually introduces himself and makes these announcements. He brings good news. Already established in the announcement of John the Baptist's birth for one thing, but good news is another major theme in Luke's whole gospel. Those words apply to John the Baptist and Jesus. The proclamation of both their births is good news. They announce to the world that salvation is present and active in the coming of these men. Their births mean that God is ready to save us. That is what makes the gospel and Christianity good news. That's the only thing that makes it good news. It's not that you can have a better life. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's not that you can have less trouble or you will have success and you will have prosperity. Maybe, maybe not. What makes the gospel good news is that your sins are forgiven. But here the angel also announces that Zechariah will now be silent and unable to speak in verse 20 because he did not believe Gabriel's words. He didn't believe them. Again, Mary believes. Mary just wonders how God is going to do it. Zechariah's question is different. It's doubt. It's unbelief. In other words, God's messengers come with the truth of God Himself. They must be believed. Don't believe for the sake of the messenger. Believe for the sake of the one who sent them with the message of your forgiveness. It is also the case, however, that Zechariah must stay silent now until the appointed time of God's revelation. Verses 21 to 22 take us back to verses 9 and 10. 
and that Zechariah is about his priestly duties here. The people already know something is up because there's been a delay and when he finally does come out, he can't speak. Now they're all kind of in a tussy because they're expecting to receive the benediction from Zechariah at the end of the incense offering. They would have been shocked if he didn't give it. That was normal. And they will receive a benediction. Everyone will. When the benediction of Aaron the high priest that's being withheld in this first scene because Zechariah is mute, the time hasn't come yet to speak, is given at the very end of Luke's Gospel by none other than Jesus Christ Himself, whose blessing sends the disciples out from the temple with joy, not bewilderment or confusion in Luke 24, 50 and 51. And ironically, all such service at the temple from this moment on will soon be rendered obsolete. The Messiah is coming. No other blessings and benedictions will be needed in addition to Him. That's being foreshadowed in the silence of Zechariah. He departs to his own house to tell his wife in verse 23, and we pick it up in 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So the text began with Zechariah alone doing his duty in the temple. It ends with his once barren wife Elizabeth alone in verse 25 contemplating that she has conceived this baby. Her words hearkening back to Hannah's words at the conception of Samuel. The God who gives life to the barren is now about to give eternal life through the means of the womb in her days as John will prepare the way for the Savior. She kept herself hidden for five months. Mary, next week, God willing, will be the first to know of her blessed state and see a sign of God's visitation to her in it. God's gracious intervention in Elizabeth's life lifts the curse that she experienced because she was barren. But more than that, it prepares the way for the Messiah with the birth of her little son, John. The Gospel comes in the midst of the mundane and difficult with the promise of otherworldly hope and joy. Why does God give life when wombs are barren? Why does He hear the prayers of one largely insignificant priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth? Why does He send His Son in the days of Herod? It's kind of a, um, an ironic thing that the time stamp is... is is Herod because part of the point is nobody remembers Herod. I mean, he didn't come in the days of Julius Caesar or Constantine or Napoleon or George Washington or JFK or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. That's not when Jesus came. Why does God silence the Father for being unable to believe that after all these years with no answer, God was now going to do an absolute miracle? Why show up in the stuff of everyday life? Why not just roll back the curtains of space and time and say, all right, here He is. Here's Jesus. Here's the Savior. With thunder and lightning and all those things. Why Why does God make us wait for answers to our prayers if He gives a specific answer at all? Why? Why have us lose all our strength so that the only thing we have left is the gift of faith that God keeps His Word? Beloved, Gabriel's words to Zechariah were not only a rebuke. They were also words of assurance. 
just as Gabriel said that Zechariah would be mute, and he already was at the time of benediction, it was also true that Zechariah could depend on Gabriel's other word then coming to pass in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. If the threat of being made mute was real, then so was the promise of a child. So, Zechariah's silence is a rebuke. It's also a kind of backhanded assurance. For he would speak again when God gave him his son. Every time in the Bible, God opened a barren womb. Every time God heard the prayer of a widow or a worn out, devastated father or mother. When God sent Jesus before the internet, before electricity, as far as we know, with no fanfare at all, except with some shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. And then He puts it in this book for us. He was proclaiming to us, to His own dear children, in this fallen world of woe and suffering, or of just even the mundane drag of everyday life, that you do not have to wait until you have it all together. You don't have to wait until everyone can see, until it's a big deal, or until we finally earned it for Him to appear for Him to be there, for Him to be real. Every time He delays an answer, every time we deal with the consequences of our own unbelief and doubt, He is right there. It is in weakness and the plain and the unremarkable. It is even in the normal mess of sin and unbelief while we are at our weakest and most vulnerable to cashing in all our chips that He comes with salvation every time. It's not always going to be thunder and lightning. It's not always going to be something amazing. Sometimes in the middle of doubt and despair and even unbelief, all we have is that He is with us and it is the truth. We might think that something difficult or unpleasant or unexpected that we're experiencing is a sign of God's disappointment with us. Or maybe it's a sign of His rebuke of us. Did we dot all the I's? Have we crossed all the T's? What did we forget? What did we not do? Is that why we're going through this time of testing and time of trouble and struggle and difficulty? God, why? And our first inclination is to say, what have I not done? I thought I lived well. I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do. It is just as likely, if not much more likely, that that is when God means to reveal the certainty of His promise to you through that difficulty. Like being made mute until your son is born. And every time you can't open your mouth, sure, it would be frustrating. It would also be a reminder that what God says will be, will be. She was starting to show Mute Zechariah saw that. Mute Zechariah heard the word of the Lord. God's promise was still moving forward. Even in his silence. In the announcement that told Zechariah and Elizabeth that the forerunner of the Messiah was going to be born to them, 
you know that Zechariah knew his Old Testament. He knew his Malachi. He knew what was being said about his boy. In the silence he experienced because he couldn't believe God could do something so amazing for him and his wife. God's promise was still moving forward. Sometimes the assurance is backhanded. But it's still assurance, beloved. You see, God has a record. God has a record of being present when you've been made mute and you're frustrated and you have to wait. This is where He is. This is, is, is this not what He told Elijah? I wasn't in the thunder. I wasn't in the wind. In the still small voice that says, I am with you. See, that's been said to you a very long time ago. And it's true. You see, we're waiting for signs and for wonders and, and, and God may be very pleased to do such things. But the Word has already been told to you. I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So, where is He? He's right here. Right here. How can I believe? Well, because God has a record. That's what this is. Don't look for life in this. Jesus says that to the Pharisees. That's not what it's doing. It's telling you that God keeps His promises. That His Word is true. He is not absent when the bottom drops out. No, he's, he's keeping you from falling with all the rest of it. Because He loves you. Do you know what it is to sit in the dust and ashes of frustration and difficulty and cry out to God, where are you? That's faith. That's faith. That's not doubt. That's faith. That's what it looks like most of the time. You're not telling Him He doesn't exist when you're crying out to Him. And His chest is big and His shoulders are broad. And your little tiny fists aren't going to hurt Him. He loves you. Even when He makes you mute. God didn't change His mind because Zechariah had questions. That's not the way it worked. God reminded him that it makes no sense to doubt him. Yes. But God also didn't renege on His promise. Nor will He ever renege on His promise to you. In this announcement, God is making clear that His plan of salvation is about to be fulfilled. And here's the thing. Not the Jewish religious establishment, or Zechariah's unbelief, or corrupt, immoral Rome, or a barren womb, or an unfaithful people who had broken the covenant and had nothing in and of themselves that could bring about a Messiah could do anything to stop it from happening. That's always the way. Beloved, there's nothing that can stop God's promise to you. Nothing. Not even you. This is the assurance we need. If that's not true, I don't care what else the Bible says. Tony, that's so sacrilegious. No, hear what I'm saying. If it's not God keeping His promise to me, what good is it to me? I can't hold on. He can. So I listen. 
or I must when I don't. When the way makes no sense, when you are out of answers, when you can't open your mouth, you look to the promise. You look to Christ. Christ. 